Hi, guys. Howdy. Oh, hey. How are you both doing today? Doing well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. How are you? Uh, okay, yeah. Literally during the postlude, um, the puppy uh, just took a poo in the house. So Nice, nice. That's great. <laughs> yeah, so it's super fun having a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> Life happens. <laughs> That's very cheap. How are you doing, Christopher? I'm good. I'm good. Long week, long days, uh, but I'm good. Happy, healthy, yeah, and good spirits. Good. And well, glad to be here with the two of you. Yeah. Uh, we're very excited that you were up to do this um, on a monthly basis. It was very fruitful. Yeah. And I know people enjoyed your answers. So, And you're awesome at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So hopefully there are still a few more questions out there. If not, you know, I'm happy to go and have brunch. So either way is totally fine. It's a win-win. It is. It is indeed. So in case people... Um, you know, just need a reminder, go ahead and in the chat, put your burning theological questions for Michael, and we'll go ahead and read them out as they come in. Um, I have one to start us out just while we're waiting for the questions to come in. Mm -hmm. um, so this is like a super easy, straightforward one. Okay. Um, so how are we as modern people to understand things in the Old Testament and apply them to our lives? Like, <laughs> Leviticus regarding hygiene and you know yeah. things like that. How, how how should we integrate that into our sort of modern theology? It's wow, easy. it's like a one word answer. That's an easy question. I just I, I can't I can't even believe that you don't know the answer. Uh, well, I feel like I should ask you to tell me the answer. It's so easy. Yeah, I mean that's that is really um, uh, at its heart. It's a question about how do we interpret the Bible and. Um, you know, part uh, you know, part of us is like, as modern people who take fairly uh, straightforward view of things, you know, we, we want to like treat every bit of the Bible as the same. But actually, there's a whole history of like 2000 years of Christian interpretation of scripture, where we've learned to read scripture through a variety of lenses. And um, recognizing that not everything means the same thing today as it did two, three, four thousand years ago. Um, and uh, and that's probably the most important thing to remember with the book is that it's uh, the Bible. It's it's an ancient book. It's an ancient collection of books written in multiple languages over a period of, you know, at, at least 1500 years engaging with the collection of oral histories that may have been an oral and sort of oral traditions that may have been thousands of years earlier. So not everything has a direct correspondence to, to life today. And, you know, especially um, with the, the Levitical codes, you know, there are really two, two factors there to, to hold on to or to, to kind of bear in mind. One is it's a very particular kind of social context that the code of laws were written toward uh, and then set or for. And then secondly, there's a, a, a strong uh, strain within early Christian thought that, you know, that through Christ, our, uh, our bondage to the law has been dissolved and we're no longer accountable to the, the legal tradition of Israel. We have this new, this new uh, freedom in Christ. And so um, there might be aspects of the Levitical law that are worth um, sort of reflecting on and thinking about. You know, for example, uh, you know, although this is a, one of the Ten Commandments, you know, Sabbath 
and the kind of consequences of Sabbath, like, you know, keeping, uh, being mindful of the needs of the poor, being mindful of the needs of land, being mindful of the needs of animals and not kind of constantly working. I mean, those are things that we can definitely draw from, but we don't have to feel obligated to maintain them. So if you're wearing, um, you know, fabrics of different kinds, uh, that's probably okay. If you're, you know, eating a, 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 a pepperoni pizza, that's probably okay. Uh, these, these laws are not uh, for, for us uh, any longer. Does that make any sense? It does. Yeah. I think it's just like, it gets very complicated in my yeah. mind because it does feel like, well, if you can sort of say that law doesn't apply to us anymore, then like, can't you sort of do that with many things in the Bible? I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, that's, it's, uh, it, reading the Bible is not necessarily a direct correlation between like, you know, what it says and a certain key action. And, you know, the kind of, the key, the kernel of the Bible, the thing at the very heart of it, that for, for Christians at least, is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of God's, um, of God's uh, unending love for humanity, God's redemption of humanity from sin, and God's promise of a full restoration of the creation at some time in God's future. And so we read all of scripture through the lens of that, um, that the work of Christ, at least as, as a Christian theologian, that's how I tend to read scripture. If I was you know, if I was Jewish, I would not read the New Testament at all. I would have, you know, and I would have a different kind of attitude towards the the writings of the Old Testament. But as a Christian, um, Jesus becomes the framework, the, the first lens that I look through when I um, read scripture. And and Jesus was um, was very, uh, in, in many of his actions, he was clear that he his, his gospel fulfilled uh, the law. I mean, you think about him healing on the Sabbath and, and um, eating uh, with uh, tax collectors and sinners. I mean, these are things that were very much kind of, um, you know, co controversial in his day and um, were, were, were not compliant with the, the law as it was interpreted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. I'm sorry about all the squeaking and the barking. I'm gonna <laughs> That's up. okay. It's awesome. <laughs> it's Here's like a new question for you. Okay. Uh, here it is. What's the point of prayer? Someone shared last week that a lot of people prayed for their friend and they still died. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why bother to pray, asks Christine Lee. Well, uh, that's a really good question. Um, so the first thing is, uh, you know, thinking about what, what is prayer and uh, what, is, what isn't prayer. Um, you know, prayer isn't a... Um, uh, a, a, a vending machine where I put in my request and I push the button and I get my, uh, I get my Twix bar uh, and prayer isn't uh, it isn't either a slot machine where I put in my coin and pull the handle and I just kind of hope that I get what I want. Uh, prayer is uh, first of all, a relationship of dependence between us and God that recognizes that we are in a kind of dynamic relationship and prayer is important because on our side of things, it, it continues to remind us that we're in this relationship. If you are in a, any kind of relationship, a friendship, if you have siblings, if you're married, um, you know, if you if you only talk to that person like once a week for like a half an hour, like on a Sunday morning, that's not much of a relationship. And that person doesn't really feel very real to you and doesn't have a huge influence on your life. But 
prayer and especially daily and kind of constant prayer keeps us ever mindful that we live in relationship to to a loving God who sustains us and is with us uh, even in the hard times. And that last piece of being with us in the hard times is one of the more difficult pieces to to um, to wrestle with with prayer is that, you know, the, the Bible is full of people who are praying, right? And the book of Psalms is like one, you know, is a huge collection of Israel's poetry and hymnody where they're wrestling with suffering and they're celebrating victories. And there's also some kind of like weird, weird Psalms in there too. But the, the, what's interesting is that, you know, there's no sense that God is keeping us uh, or preventing us from suffering or preventing people from dying. It, rather, the message of the Psalms is that God is with us in the midst of those circumstances. And when I think about, you know, the, you know, what, what this question about prayer is in, in one sense is about is the, is the problem of evil. Why, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? I think about Psalms 22 and 23. Psalm 22 begins with this uh, cry of dereliction that we hear from the word, from the mouth of, mouth of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on to kind of lament the sense of God's abandoning me. I'm hurting. I'm, my, my friends don't like me anymore. Where are you, God? And we go through this like this kind of emotional vomit uh, of Psalm 22. And then at the end of it, we get to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And for me, there's something about this, you know, God being with us in the midst of suffering. That's how God shows God's love for us, not necessarily in the avoidance of suffering, uh, but in the presence of God with us in suffering. And, um, you know, uh, and, and I'd say lastly, then, so why, why should we pray? Um, uh, a very good reason, I think, is that Jesus tells us to pray. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jesus isn't like too big on law. There aren't a lot of things that Jesus does that he's like, you have to do this. Uh, but one of them is you have to pray. And when you pray, pray in this, this pattern. And he gives us the, the Lord's prayer as a pattern. So Jesus is, is encouraging us, uh, is commanding us even to engage in a, in a relationship of prayer to Jesus's father. I hope that, uh, I hope that answers your question a little bit, Christine. <laughs> Keep on praying. Yeah, Christine definitely needed that. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I man, when she prays, you know that God is listening. Like she, she's someone who like knows that God's there. <laughs> and the great words of humans don't stop believing. That's right. <laughs> um, Amy Hitosubashi, I always mess up your last name, Amy. I'm so sorry. Um, has a question on the topic of ancient Jewish law. Could you comment on Jubilee and possible desirable contemporary ramifications? Wow. So, um, yeah, the, the Jewish law or the custom of Jubilee is like, is that, um, the debts are forgiven in a certain cycle and, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the country as a whole can engage in rest in a certain cycle. I think it's like what, every 50 years or something like that. I feel like that's, that's right. Um, I don't know, uh, a ton about it, uh, and, uh, about, about Jubilee. And I, I feel like I read something once that scholars aren't even actually sure that Jubilee was, was actually practiced. It's more of like a principle that may, may or may not have actually been incorporated. And so if it is a principle, I think there's something to be said for, um, uh, you know, things like debt relief and, uh, and kind of collective rest. And the purpose of the, 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 the law or the rule of Jubilee is probably 
to remind us that nothing in this life is forever. Debt isn't forever. Uh, suffering and pain aren't forever. Toil and work aren't forever. God has uh, in mind for God's people rest and restoration uh, and that cycles of poverty should be broken. And I think that this, this kind of reflects something of God's uh, drive toward justice and uh, which is a, a commitment that we see repeatedly throughout scripture. And I think that might be at the heart of Jubilee. So I would say, you know, as an example, then maybe perhaps Jubilee could, could offer us some, some insight into how we approach things like the relief of debt and, um, and uh, the need for uh, equity, uh, especially financial equity in the world today. That's a good answer, Michael. I'm really impressed with you. Oh, thanks. Well, I hope it's true. <laughs> I had a lot of coffee this morning, so you can thank Starbucks later. We'll take another sip because Mitch Kramer, the noble, wonderful, great Mitch Kramer has a question for you, Okay, which is, what would you say is the most common biblical misinterpretation or misconception in American Christianity today? And how would you respond to it? Yeah, so I think it's kind of related to that question that I was dealing with before related to prayer and suffering and all this. I think that we that American Christians uh, assume that success means blessing and that the Christian life is supposed to be this kind of easy, uh, you know, kind of successful uh, kind of pathway. And if you have any kind of obstacles or any kind of hardships in your life, something's wrong with you. Uh, and, and that is just absolutely contrary to the whole story of scripture. I mean, the, the, the scripture, the stories that get like have, have been kind of uh, gathered in the Bible are almost always about people who have, have met God in the midst of suffering and, and are wrestling with God uh, uh, and, and like sticking with it in the, in, the, in the good and the bad. And at the heart of this is Jesus Christ, God's son, who sent to the world to die on a cross. And so if, if we think that the Christian life is all success, we've forgotten that at the heart of it is Jesus Christ suffering and death. Now, of course, he has, he, he's raised, uh, raised from the dead and, and, and sits at the right hand of God the Father. We, that, that's part of the story, too. But we, we don't get to Easter until we have uh, Good Friday. And so I think the biggest misunderstanding of Christianity today is that somehow the Christian life is about avoiding suffering as opposed to God being present with us in the midst of suffering and promising to be with us on the other side of suffering too. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it leads into all kinds of things about prosperity gospel and the way we treat people who are, are somehow who we perceive to be somehow less than um, it's sort of like when uh, Jesus was asked before um, uh, you know healing I think it was a blind man who sinned this the, the, this man or his parents that he should be born blind and Jesus is like that that's not how this works y'all I mean, this this that 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 notion of like sin equals suffering or, you know, or righteousness equals blessing is just not how the world works. And I think that's something that's really interesting about how the Christian gospel can, can operate is it can be a corrective 
to our kind of fantasies about God. And one of the things I often tell students is that, that our biggest problem with God is that we sometimes think that we have the God that we want as opposed to the God who is. And the God who is, is not the kind of, again, lottery, uh, slot machine, vending machine kind of God. The God that is, 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 is the God who's revealed in Jesus in both weakness and death and suffering and victory. Well said, Mitch. I hope you're satisfied. That was good. <laughs> I just have a question. This is more of an opinion question um, than a theology question. So, like, you know, when you were giving your answer, the first thing that popped into my mind was, uh, you know, a lot of this sort of American evangelical, like, prosperity gospel stuff, which is what you refer to. Um, and, and it makes me super angry. Like, <laughs> there's like the seed money, and like that stuff just enrages me. Yeah. And I just wonder if you, like, do you think that that is just a misinterpretation on the part of the people who are preaching that gospel? Or do you think it's like a willful manipulation? And this is totally obviously not <laughs> yeah. just an opinion. Just between friends, right? Nobody has to know my opinion on I this. I should just stop listening right now. <laughs> just yeah. Turn off YouTube. No, I, I think that, um, I think that there, there, there's probably a bit of both, honestly. Uh, and I think there, there have always, there's always been a bit of both. I mean, the Protestant reformations um, start, you know, one of the things that really caused it to bubble over was among, you know, for Martin Luther, seeing the church exploit the poor for the sake of its own comfort, as opposed to comforting the poor as in, in a stance of service. And we think about the way that uh, indulgences were sold in the 16th century, these like little bits of paper that said that your friends or your loved ones could get out of purgatory if you paid a certain amount of money to the church. And that money for the church went to build the St. Peter's in Rome because it was in disarray. And so the church needed money. And so the way that it got money was basically by selling like kind of cosmic prayers. And um, so this kind of this, this notion that I can control God is, is like deep, deep inside of like inside of us. And it, it is a, it's a, it's a fundamental sin because once well, once we control God, God is no longer God. God becomes an idol. And, you know, that that is really one of the f foundational sins is that God becomes the thing that I can make and make it do what I want it to do, as opposed to, to the God who's free and free to love and free to act and free free to be with me. And so um, I think it's it's a bit of, of both a, a, mis, a theological misunderstanding. Uh, often, you know, um, you know, it's 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 you know informed by a, a poor reading of scripture, a lack of understanding of the the kind of big scope of what God's been doing in the world through both scripture and the the Christian tradition. And then, you know, for some people you know, power and wealth and success corrupts and it, and it makes it so that sometimes we can't even see the mistakes that we're making because of our power and our wealth and our success. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a lot of that, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Aaron Lee Patterson has a great question too. Uh, how did the book of common prayer come to be? Oh. And is it as important or respected as the Bible? Well, um, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, this is, there's a, there's a lot, I'll give you the short version of this. Um, throughout uh, medieval Christianity, there were books of hours, you know, for praying throughout the day, and, and they often incorporated the Psalter, and if you were a wealthy person, you often had a really beautifully ornate, uh, you know, um, uh, painted and, and illustrated version of the prayer, the hours, and they're primarily part of the uh, the spiritual practices of, of, of monks and then wealthy people who had time to, to both 
learn how to read, own a book, and then actually pray the hours themselves. And there were periods of prayer, seven times of prayer throughout the day, and um, and and along with it, you know, re- reading of the Psalter. And uh, then there were also uh, worship books that only priests would have for things like, you know, Eucharist and other sacramental rites, and then ordination books. So if you were a religious person in in the Middle Ages, if you were if you were like a religious lay person, you probably had like this this book of prayers that you had that were hard to learn and expensive to get. And then if you were a religious, professionally religious person, like a priest or something, you have this huge collection of books that you'd have to navigate and everything. And then in uh, the 16th century, ding, 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 this time of like huge transition in the religious life of, of Europe, uh, there was an Archbishop of Canterbury called uh, Thomas Cranmer. And uh, Thomas Cranmer uh, was trying to simplify the spiritual practices of English Christians in the time of the Reformation in order so that people in all places of life, in all stations of life, could, could develop a, a daily practice of prayer and reading of the Psalms in their own language. So he took this huge thing of like monastic uh, offices that were spread throughout the day and compressed them into morning prayer and evening prayer. And that's the first thing that he did. Translated it into English, translating, gave us the, an English uh, Psalter and uh, enabled um, people in their native language to pray uh, in, in forms that were relatively easy for them to take up. And that, that was the heart of the Book of Common Prayer. And then other services were added into it so that we'd have access to, you know, the Eucharistic service and ordination services and other sacramental rites. And so it really became that this one book had everything that you needed to, to, to do to, to pray the prayers of the church and to read scripture in an ordered way and to be part of this like group of people who are praying and reading in this particular pattern. And it helped to unify a, the, a group of, of English Christians and also to um, to kind of democratize spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. So it's um, the book of common prayer isn't scripture. I mean, scripture is, um, is, is the, the foundational text of Christianity, but it is a way of, of patterning a life of prayer. And in addition to um, the prayers of the church, the book of common prayer often also includes things like a small catechism or historical documents that are important to the faith. And these are also things that are helpful to kind of help us to interpret our tradition in light or to know our tradition and to, to, to engage with it in a more regular basis. There's um, actually a follow-up question by Howard uh, Hyatt, who um, is also referencing Thomas Cranmer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Tudors is awesome, but okay. I love I loved that show, and it, it's it's you know it's it you know is it historically accurate? Probably not. I mean, um, you know, but you know, but we do know uh, one thing is that Henry VIII was crazy, and uh, but he certainly was not as handsome as uh, the guy who plays Henry VIII in Tudors on HBO. Uh, that's definitely for sure. I think Henry was a lot shorter and fatter, especially towards. The the, uh, the end of his life. But as far as the pre- representation of Thomas Cranmer, I mean, there's probably some tooth- truth to that. Um, there's a couple of great books about Cranmer that have come out in the last uh, 20 years or so. One of them's by a, an English scholar called Dermid McCulloch, and uh, he wrote a little book on the life of Thomas Cranmer. And what's cool to learn about Cranmer is that he um, was such a, a shrewd politician in his day and uh, was able to kind of, you know, kind of play theological jujitsu with the uh, with the king uh, 
and as as he and kind of navigate both his kind of Protestant tendencies as well as his Catholic tendencies, all the while uh, creating you know a foundational religious text for you know a, a third of of of, uh, of Western Christianity until he was martyred. But you know that's another thing. Yeah, you know it happens. <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, I'll try to frame this question from Rachel Rim who points out that there are harmful ideologies that have informed the history of biblical interpretation. Uh, So how does one take scripture seriously and reverently uh, uh, while not seeing it as inerrant? In other words, where is the middle ground between taking every word literally and not taking any world seriously? Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, super complicated, and uh, so I'll try to distill it into uh, a nutshell. Um, but and maybe maybe this is this could be like the start of a of a class that we have at St. Peter's on like ways of of reading scripture. Ooh. The first thing that I would bear in mind is uh, how does the Bible read itself, and um, what I mean by that is um, scripture quotes itself constantly. And uh, this is particularly the case in the New Testament, which is often making use of the Old Testament, whether it be the Psalms or uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, those can tend to be the kind of two major sources of, of Christian reflection on the on the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament. But um, the way that they're reading it is not often or if ever kind of literal in the way that we would tend to, to read scripture literally. We, we tend to, when we talk about like literal readings of scripture, you know, if it says um, in the Psalms, you know, may my, uh, may the children of my enemy be dashed on the rocks, uh, a literal reading of that would be like, God thinks it's awesome to take the children of your enemy and smash them on the rocks. But that's not how that, that that would be contrary to what we know about God's character revealed through the whole of the tradition. And it would also be a way of reading scripture that isn't consistent with how scripture reads itself, which tends to read it in allegorical ways where it's it's asking, like, what is a what could be a, a meaning deeper than this, uh, this surface meaning or anagogical ways, which could ask, what would be a moral lesson that this thing might be teaching me? And so I think we have to always approach scripture with multiple lenses. And uh, that's what it means to faithfully read the Bible, is not to just read it on the one level, but to be open to the reading on a variety of levels. And, you know, um, there, there are a couple of ways that we can keep from going off the rails with this, because, you know, what, when we say that we're not reading it kind of, um, you know, literally, but we're reading it in ways that are faithful to how it's been read and how it's presenting itself, it can seem, well, then, you know, what, what this could mean anything, and where, where is truth in all of this? And um, truth is safeguarded by um, both reading scripture within community and not just your own community. Like, you know, if you're, you know, in Appalachia and handling snakes and stuff, you know, that, that, you know, that, that's a community, but it may not be the best community to read scripture in, but like the whole community of the church. And, and what, what has been said about this passage by the 2000 years of Christian history that's preceded me? And how do I begin to read it within that range? And then the other safeguard is the Holy Spirit. 
who is given to the church, uh, not entirely, but certainly a prominent feature of the work of the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand uh, who God is and what God's up to in the world. And, And the Holy Spirit is involved in our interpretation of scripture. So as long as we stay within these two rails of the, you know, being attentive to the tradition and being mindful of the the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds as we interpret scripture, I think we can be safeguarded in some kind of of continuum of orthodoxy. (laughs) That is super complicated. I mean, black and white answers, that's basically just live in the gray and pray a lot. Yeah, well, it's it's a life of study. I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, the, the church was really reluctant to translate scripture into the vernacular, into the language that people spoke, was that it would open up the possibility of really bad interpretations. But yet, you know, it's worth the risk to have people poorly interpret scripture so that they at least can engage with scripture, because the, I think the, the risk is almost like a walk, a, a leap of faith. You know, we have faith that God is going to be with us as we're reading scripture. And as long as we all keep a, a kind of humility and recognize that we can't possibly know everything and we can't, you know, and we may really be wrong sometimes and be open to that wrongness. I think that's something that that this this is inviting a kind of humility, which again is like really countercultural because we look for experts who like know everything as opposed to people who are like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a wrestling match more than, more than, um, you know, kind of a, a yes or no sort of answer. Yeah. yeah. So Martha, Robbie has a question. I, I, I you want to take us out with this one? This is actually perfect timing. It's going to um, be the last question that we have today. So um, it, in the later Old Testament text, there became a development of evil in the world. And in the New Testament, that development turned into Satan or the devil. What role do you think that Satan or evil has in the world and in our lives today? Wow. Well, <laughs> it's a good one to go out. <laughs> yeah. So, um, let's see. Boy, that's a tough one. So, I I definitely think that um, that uh, there is evil, uh, and uh, I I think that uh, there is a um, a strong strain within the tradition. Of, of understanding that evil has some kind of personification that uh, and that there are these principalities and powers that seem to be at work in the world. And uh, the gospel of Mark is full of stories of Jesus wrestling with demons uh, in, in, in people who are uh, afflicted by the devil. And a lot of the, um, the early Christian uh, fathers who were writing about trying to explain what did Jesus accomplish on the cross, they used a, a metaphor of God be, be, having victory over the power of the devil. So, you know, whether the devil is a, is a symbol or is, is actually some kind of being, uh, there's, you know, there's a kind of continuum of belief here, uh, which, you know, some, some would argue that there's definitely a, a being called Satan that, you know, gets up to, to, to certain things in, in the world. And others are like, well, Satan is a metaphor for, for the evil that exists. I think you can probably, um, hold either view and be, you know, 
largely an, an, or, an Orthodox Christian. For me personally, I probably tend a little bit more on this side where I, I think that there are forces and powers that we can't quite understand that that uh, are that that may mean us harm and may be influencing aspects of the world in ways that are uh, not, that are contrary to the life giving uh, power of Christ and the call to life in the gospel. And I think that we, but it doesn't mean that there's like a devil behind every bush or that every time somebody sneezes, they're possessed by a devil of uh, hay fever, uh, but rather that there there is more to this world than we can fully understand. And that goes back to this notion of being kind of humble and, and you know, not and trying not to be too uh, dogmatic about things because we just can't fully understand things. And I do know that the church, even the Episcopal church has uh, you know, liturgies for for exorcisms for those who are particularly afflicted by the devil, and um, and we pray um, that God would liberate us and free us from the power of Satan. And we, in our baptismal rites, uh, we um, we uh, renounce the devil and all of his empty promises. So I think there is there is definitely uh, for me there there is some more something there more than just the symbolic uh, something that has a kind of power that uh, that Christ is putting pressure against and the work of the church is to put pressure against, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> well, we'll go with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go with it. Theologian. Uh, yeah, I will go with anything you say. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Within reason. But that is just a, a testament to just how wise you are, how fortunate we are that you are in our St. Peter's community. Oh, it's a joy to be here. I, lo- I, lo- I love it here. I wish we were in person. <laughs> well, well, so do we. Um, and But this is where something like this can be born, ask a yeah. theologian. Yeah. So yeah. if we were in person, we may miss this opportunity, but but here we are. I, I do feel like you know a, a great religious practice is full of faith, practice, and study, like those yeah. three components. So... Thank you for this study portion. Of course, of yeah. course, yeah. No, and you've done so much talking and thinking. You should just go get a drink. <laughs> I might just do that. I might get myself a mimosa. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Well, Bye. Olé, 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 olé.